Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. My guest this week is Aviva Kempner. She's the director of the documentary The Spy Behind Home Play. The film follows the life of Mo Berg. Mo played back in the 1920s and 1930s, the era of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And even though he's not a household name these days, like those guys are, he's maybe a million times more interesting. He was known at the time as the brainiest man in baseball. He studied Sanskrit at the Sorbonne in Paris. And once he left baseball, he became a spy during World War II. Here's a scene from the documentary. Robert Fitz, the author of Bonsai Babe Ruth, shares the time Mo and Babe Ruth went on a barnstorming trip through Japan. Mo Berg spent most of his time on deck in a deck chair studying Japanese. At the very beginning of the trip, Babe Ruth goes up to Mo Berg and says, do you speak Japanese? Mo Berg says, no, no, I don't really speak Japanese at all. And they arrive two weeks later in Yokohama and a Japanese man comes on board and Berg greets him in what sounds to Babe Ruth like perfect Japanese. And the babe looks at Mo and says, I thought you said you can't speak Japanese. And Berg looks at him and goes, well, that was two weeks ago. Aviva, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. And thank you for the film. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have kind of dedicated your career to telling the stories in film of Jewish heroes. Why is that? Uh, underknown Jewish heroes. Well, it started out because as a child of a Holocaust survivor, I was always fascinated with the fact that people didn't know that Jews had fought back in the resistance. And I thought it was unfair that people didn't know it. And because of career choices, I always thank the D.C. bar for flunking me. I was in law school. I decided to go the avenue of pursuing film, and that was the first story on the agenda. I produced it and conceived it. And from there, it had to do with other heroes that I had heard about. You know, Hank Greenberg was this great baseball player, almost broke Babe Ruth's record in 38, didn't play on Yom Kippur in 34, which was a, you know, a big thing at the height of domestic anti-Semitism in Detroit. And my dad, who was an immigrant Jew who loved baseball and taught my brother and I baseball, always talked about it. I thought he was part of Kol Nidra's service, which is our most religious service growing up. And then it just kept on going. Gertrude Berg started the first sitcom, fought on TV, fought sexism and McCarthyism. And then I was inspired by Julian Bond to make a film on Julius Rosenwald, the great philanthropist who gave away $62 million in his life and built in tandem with African-American communities 5,000 schools in, in the Jim Crow South. So it has continued to be a theme. And, you know, I feel especially even in dramatic films or in TV, there's not enough, I think, positive Jewish characters. And as I say, they call me the Jewish Spike Lee, and I just keep on rolling with it. Um, what do you think is the particular connection between uh, Jews in the United States and baseball? I don't think we're the only immigrant group, but what I could have observed from my father is when he came, now of course he came in the 20s, baseball was the only sport, but I think in general it's been written about that immigrants, when they come here, 
how do you adapt to America? And one easy way was to follow baseball. And I think that's just continued, continued. I mean, maybe now today's it's football or basketball, but it certainly was in my dad's day, and he conveyed it to us. We went to a lot of games growing up. I continue it, although I tease my brother Jonathan. You've betrayed us because you're following hockey and basketball. But um, <laughs> I think it, it was a pretty accessible game for a lot of people. And again, it was what others do. I mean, it's how you became American. Although the interesting thing about Mo Berg, his father was an immigrant Jew, had come from the Ukraine, worked his way up from working in a sweatshop to training as a pharmacist. His son played baseball as a young boy, a star on the Princeton team, 15 years in the major leagues, two years as a coach, and Bernard Berg never saw his son play one game. I mean, to me, that's the tragedy of Mo's life. Well, I mean, I, I think that is probably not an uncommon experience among the children of immigrants who go into what you might broadly characterize as the impractical fields, right? Well, actually, during the Depression, Mo was making a better living, you know, than his siblings or his dad. And I might say, I think it also hurt Bernard a lot, in all fairness, because Mo, in the winter, had gone to law school for three seasons. Even the first season, he was playing for Chicago White Sox, coming late uh, for spring training. Although the second season, the owner, Kaminsky, said, uh-uh, you can't come late. So he got excused from Columbia Law School to finish the course later. But I think you're right. I, I think it's not the typical avenue. I mean, here's a new country, and, you know, why do I, our kids want to play sports? You know, that's not something really respected back back in the old country. So Moberg was uh, an extraordinarily successful student, and he went off to an Ivy League college. At the time, the Ivy League and many American colleges, most American colleges, still had significant limits for Jewish students. Um, what were the limits and challenges that, that he faced, even as a star athlete? So Mo's on the team in 23, and we show in the film his yearbook picture, and under it they call him Hebrew. So that was partly the identification right there. But it was more than that. I, I don't quite get it, but Princeton has this program, and maybe it even exists today, of dinner clubs, and that you belong to certain dinner clubs. Well, apparently, Jewish students couldn't get into them, but because Mo was a star on the baseball team, Mo wasn't invited to be in uh, a dinner club. But they told him he couldn't bring any other, especially other Jewish students his fellow students, and Mo just refused to join it. So that's the one scene that I have in the film that I really identified that Mo faced anti-Semitism. It was much more pronounced for Hank Greenberg even a decade later, but of course they didn't want him to hit home runs against him. So there was a lot of catcalling from opposing teams in the field. So he was a star player on the baseball team. Was it clear that he was going to become a professional baseball player? Well, I think in his mind, it was very clear. He was really good. People were scouting him. There's a really fun story. And this is the advantage in the, 
of being a child of immigrants and being exposed to languages. Plus, he majored in linguistics at Princeton. Is They used to tell each other signals secretly in Latin, although in the film there's a very funny line. Well, you know, you're playing other Ivy League schools. They know Latin, too. So what do you do? You say your signals in Sanskrit. Although I think Sanskrit's a written language, so that would be difficult, too. One of Moberg's teammates at one point was talking about him, and he said, you know, Berg, he speaks a dozen languages and can't hit in any of them, which is very funny and um, also isn't true. There were some doubts that he spoke all 12 fluently. He probably spoke 10. He spoke English, French, Spanish, German. His Greek was perfect. Hebrew, Russian. His Latin was quite good. Sanskrit, and he also spoke Yiddish. So he was initially scouted and signed by teams in cities with big Jewish populations who wanted him because they saw the opportunity to have a, a ball player who was also a box office star to those immigrant communities. But only the first time was the Brooklyn Robins. After that, he went to Chicago and then Washington and Cleveland then end, ended up in Boston. But I think the the first intention was that, too. Just like with Hank Greenberg, the New York teams were going after him. Or I'd say the Yankees were, and Hank said, took one look at Lou Gehring and say, I'm never going to play first base. I'm going to play another clip from the film. So the first thing we are going to hear is uh, from Robert Matthews, who's a baseball memorabilia collector. And he's talking about the two things that Moberg brought with him on a trip to Japan, a Major League Baseball tour of Japan. Uh, the first was a Bell and Howell movie camera, which was a big deal at the time. And uh, one other thing. But he also had a letter with him that was signed by Secretary of State Cordell Hall. It was addressed to the embassy in Japan to extend all sorts of diplomatic courtesy to Mo. Why would Moberg have a letter from Secretary of State? Was it because he knew to have this in case he ever ran into any trouble, in case he wanted any favors, or was there an ulterior motive? Was he already spying for the United States government? Who knows what it's gonna be like in the future? And that's why Hull gave him a letter, because the State Department wants to know about what's going on. And they figure a baseball player is going to find out unique, interesting things. Now, here's the thing. There are some things about Mo Berg's baseball career that are, you know, in your local library's copy of the baseball encyclopedia that are hard facts. The rest of his life is so extraordinary that as many times as I've heard about it, I've always just thought that can't possibly you be You couldn't true. make it's it up. It's too good a story. It's too good a story. This has to be apocryphal. It just has to be that he coincidentally spoke a bunch of languages and read the newspaper a lot. Like, this couldn't be true. So when you're making a film about this, how did you get to the part of the story that you knew was true, separate from the he spoke 12 languages and he couldn't hit in any of them things that, you know, everyone who's ever read a, you know, biographical encyclopedia of baseball knows about Moberg. 
Well, I had the advantage of several things. There were two books written by Bo, and the second was the one that we used the most called uh, The Catcher Was a Spy by Nicholas Davidoff, and he's in the film. The second one was these 18 interviews recorded 30 years ago by the people who really experienced him either day by day on the field or on the most secret missions with Mo, as well as two ESPN interviews that had been taken for a short doc that had been done on Mo. We also had declassified OSS records, and that was very important. But four of the people in my film themselves were trying to make a film on Mo. Robert Kaplan, who years ago had gotten the option of the first book on Mo, after Marlon Brando's option ran out. Um, Ray Fox, who had been commissioned by Harvey Weinstein before we knew how evil Harvey was, had written a script on Mo. A woman with my same, uh, same first name, Aviva Miller, who had got to know Sam Berg and was trying to make a film on Mo. And then this Neil Goldstein, who actually was just in the excerpt you played, who, who conducted those interviews. So partly it's from the people who worked with him played with him, and the conjecture of all these other people that were trying to make films, including Larry Merchant, who is a boxing specialist and, and announcer. And it turns out, after a while, myself and my editor, who I think does a beautiful job in the film, Barbara Bello, we just started putting together the pieces and saying, some is still open, but some seems very clear, because we had... The OSS, the woman, uh, Sue Strange, who does the research on OSS. And again, because the documents were declassified, it really helped. I'll continue my conversation with Aviva Kempner in a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Babbel. Have you always wanted to speak a new language? Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to Babbel, B A B B E L dot com, to try Babbel for free. Americans kind of owe recycling to the mafia and a huge mistake by this guy. Garbage in New York, that was like a controlled substance. There was a cartel that controlled the flow of garbage. Why we started recycling on NPR's Planet Money podcast. Hey, I'm Janet Varney, and like many of you, some more recent than others, I used to be a teenager. In fact, just about all of my friends were too, including wonderful women like Alison Brie. I'm dead center on the balance beam. And this is like a big gym. All the ki- kids' parents are there watching. I have to stop, like, you know, when you have to pee so bad and you can't even move. And then I just go. I just pee oh, right in the middle no. of the high balance beam. <laughs> so join me every week on the JV Club podcast where I speak with complicated, funny, messy humans as we reminisce about our adolescences and how they led us to becoming who we are. Find it every Thursday on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Aviva Kempner. Her new movie, The Spy Behind Home Plate, is out now across the country in limited release. How did his career as an actual spy come out of his, you know, his career as, uh, 
as a player, coach, third catcher, whatever he was up to immediately upon the end of his uh, baseball career. He's, or I should say, immediately, yeah. uh, immediately upon the end of his real baseball playing career. Right. He was a coach for the Red Sox when Nelson Rockefeller, who he knew, Nelson Rockefeller approached Mo about joining in an alleged trip to study and train people in baseball, players in baseball in South America. It was a total ruse because we were very worried that the Nazis were also infiltrating and gaining influence in South America, as, they sh- as we should have been worried. When Mo was down there, it was about the time that the OSS was being developed, the Office of Strategic Services, which was our precursor to the CIA. America was very lacking in intelligence, which was certainly proved by Pearl Harbor. And FDR had gotten Wild Bill Donovan, a hero from World War I, to develop this OSS. And Mo was like a perfect profile. Donovan loved getting people Ivy League smart, you know, people like Arthur Schlesinger, Ralph Bunch. But he also got safe crackers out of jail to help on it. He also got people from Hollywood like Marlena Dietrich, John Ford. By Wild Bill Donovan selecting Mo, he combined someone who had already done some missions in South America, someone who knew languages, as a child of immigrants, knew customs of, you know, of what was happening in Europe. And athletes can be very agile on the spot if you have to get away, you know, over a fence. And, you know, you talk about Mo risking his life. He, to my, in my mind, risked his life double because as a Jewish male, he could be discovered on the spot. And as someone who, you know, was written about in American newspapers, we couldn't have someone like Brad Osbos go be a spy today because it would be all over, you know, the digital world. It was bad enough that Mo was already in newspapers, but people wouldn't have had the access to find it. So uh, I'd say he's like triply brave in terms of going on these missions. You know, I I don't want to spoil any of the narrative <laughs> elements of the film, but I, I'll say that it's very unusual to have a war hero, which he certainly was, whose greatest act of heroism was eschewing violence. He could have... <laughs> look, you're giving me that look. I'm trying... I'm, you're doing my best not to spoil it, Okay. Yeah. Let's just say Heisenberg has a son who you, who's interviewed in the film, <laughs> who was born after World War II. <laughs> Look at he was Malberg was sent on a mission to listen to Heisenberg speak, and if he figured out that Heisenberg knew about the nuclear bomb in this lecture he gave in Zurich, the orders were to kill him, and he also spoke with them after. I mean, how many people are sent on a mission to assassinate someone, and they go talk to them? He made a decision that Heisenberg didn't know about the bomb. And the rest, you know, how he did that and got away with it, you can see in the film. But I think what's really important is that how much the Manhattan Project uh, depended on Moe's report back. Because, in fact, that was 
it, that was at the point uh, crucial into developing the bomb in Los Alamos that we needed to know. And it wasn't just the Heisenberg mission. He also got Italian scientists out of Italy and to the States so they wouldn't fall into German hands and do work for them. And that was Antonia Ferry, who was a very important rocket scientist who the Germans wanted to get out. He Instead, he ran and joined the partisans, and Mo found him. As someone says in the film, in one day he figured out how to find him. So it's it's getting the scientists out as well as finding out what their scientists knew, which is, you know, key work. And for me, in today's world, we're worried about North Korea having nuclear capability, the Middle East, Russia. Who are the Mobergs of today? And I bet you anything, a lot of them are immigrants and children of immigrants who, you know, have those language capabilities and know the customs that can fit into the background and and get information back to us. I think that background quality does feel like a particular gift of the immigrant experience that living in two worlds simultaneously means that you have to have a certain self-awareness about your presentation you know, the way you exist in the world. And that certainly seems to have been a quality that Mo Berg had, that he was someone who knew what he was showing to people when he was showing something to people. And it just wasn't Mo. We have uh, William Corva talk about his father who led Mo into Italy, you know, different cities to do his spying. And the father, Max Corva, had gone into the service, the son of immigrant. No, actually, he had been an immigrant himself. And they put him in as a private. And he said, but I know all these maps of Sicily. I know Italian. Use me better. And sure enough, they made him the head of the OSS. Or we have Frank Manglioni, who had just been in North Africa as a soldier. They realized he knew Italian. They sent him up to Rome, and he was the radio operator that got Mo's messages back to the States. And uh, the great mission of getting Antonio Ferra to the States that made sure that we were ahead of the Germans, FDR said, well, tell the catcher, I think he's catching pretty well still. <laughs> so when World War II ended, Moberg's brother, the doctor, was part of the group of doctors and scientists who traveled to Japan to study the after effects of the nuclear attack there. And we learn in the film that Moberg didn't know about his brother's involvement and that his brother didn't know about Moberg's. I mean, it's remarkable to think of the strange ways that that kind of secrecy can div- divide even a, even a family. Well, you know, Bernard Berg, before he died, had called in his sons and said, you know, you've got to do something for the war effort. Close to the day that Mo left being a coach to go spy in South America, Bernard dies. Bernard never knows what kind of spy and a war hero Mo was and never knows either what Sam did. As a matter of fact, we have a scene in the film where Mo shows up in California, we're taping this in California, to see him before he goes off, uh, goes off for training. And Sam says, 
but I didn't know how Mo came on a military plane. He wasn't even telling his brother what he was in. And I have this thing about always having the Marx Brothers in my film. And sure enough, who do they have dinner with that night? But Chico Marx, who was somehow Mo's friend. I mean, that's a movie in itself. And one of the best lines at the end of the film is when Robert Kaplan says, Samberg never knew what Mo had done, and Mo never knew what Sam had done. While the war's going on, of course, they knew after the war. And, you know, that happened in, I think, a lot of families. Um, you know, I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor, which probably is one of the biggest reasons I do my films, especially since my mother did not talk about how she passed as a Polish Catholic in Germany with another young woman with false papers working in a barrel factory. And it's these type of stories that you just sort of have to reek out either when you're doing a film or with your own family. And one thing I hope I always say to people is, you know, do oral histories with your family. Because I really didn't do it with my mother, even my father, who was in the military government um, and in the Pacific during the war. And I think what's really important is that we go back and write books, see movies, make the movies so that we know where we come from and, you know, what constitutes a hero, what constitutes a spy. And unfortunately, because of world affairs, we're always going to need them. There are a lot of lessons to be learned by films like this. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Aviva Kempner. Her film, The Spy Behind Home Plate, is playing at theaters across the country. If you get a chance, say hi to her. She's been making appearances all the time at screenings. She is absolutely a delight of a human being. She's also, by the way, the director of one of the greatest baseball documentaries ever made, The Life and Times of Hank Greenberg, which I cannot recommend enough. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week our producer Ragu saw horses around the lake. He thinks that police were using them. It says here in the script, Ragu says he would 100% sign up for one of those app-based scooter situations, only it's horses. Just like horses hanging out around your neighborhood. You just, you know, rent it out. That's a free idea, America, from my producer, Ragu. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer emeritus, one day to return, is Kevin Ferguson. He's taking care of a new baby, so Ragu Manavalan stepped in for him this week and came up with that uh, horse rental situation. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien. Casey is a Twins fan. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. She's from uh, Philadelphia, so I'm going to say she's a Phillies fan. Ragu, what's your favorite team? Ragu is a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers, as is Kevin Ferguson. That's just the reality of doing a public radio program in Los Angeles, is you're going to get these Dodgers fans working for you, and you can't judge them for it. You have to go into it with an open mind. I, of course, root for the San Francisco Giants. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Dan Wally's from Massachusetts. I'm going to say he's a Red Sox fan. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. The Go Team are from England, so they probably don't know from baseball. They probably only play rounders. Uh, But let's say the folks at Memphis Industries probably root for the Memphis Redbirds. 
Before you go, did you know Bullseye has been around for almost two decades now, and all of our past shows, almost all of them anyway, are up on the internet and available to you to listen to for free. You can find them by searching our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find many of them on our YouTube channel. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, including uh, this week's interviews in easily shareable fashion. Uh, All that on our website, MaximumFun.org, in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're on Twitter at Bullseye. I'm at Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.